Hello and welcome back to Dark History's Christmas Campfire 2022. I hope you all had a fantastic Christmas and, you know, you're having a nice holiday. I've got no idea what day it is. It's that weird sort of limbo between Christmas and New Year where everything just sort of melds into one. But I'm having a nice time, so that's good. <laughs> this Today we're going to do uh, part two of the Christmas Campfire. I have many, many more stories that are not going to make it into part one or two. And I think what I'll do with them is do a, a campfire episode later in the year uh, and just drop it like when it feels appropriate sometime as a sort of little bonus. Because there's just so many stories this year, which is amazing. But uh, yeah, we'll just never get through them all at this rate. So uh, I'll do a, a, a sort of bonus campfire uh, later on, maybe sort of springtime with the other stories. With that said, let's jump into some Christmas campfire tales to hopefully help you while away your evenings between, say, this weird limbo period. So the first story comes from Nick. Nick says, During my first year of my degree course, I lodged with a lovely retired couple, Anne and Roland, who had always lived in their local area of Worcester. They were quite happy for me to come and go through a side door in their house, and as long as I behaved... They gave me the freedom to enjoy university life. As the term moved on, we formed a good relationship. They enjoyed the extra money from renting out a spare room and I was relatively sensible for a 19-year-old living away from home, so we get on well. Apart from one night when I got back home in a state after a night out with my new college rugby teammates, our lodging arrangements were working out fine. My experience occurred in the early spring. I'd stayed later than planned at my mate's dorm watching a film but when it finished well after midnight, I decided I'd go back to my lodgings, as I had a lecture and tutorial in the morning, and by that stage of term, I badly needed to show my face in a few. The way home involved leaving the campus down a long path that split the sports field and cricket pitch. These were lined on either side by numerous mature trees, which were illuminated by the odd light. It had never bothered me about walking back late, as it was a short journey that I'd done hundreds of times before. On this occasion, I'd headed down into the gloom without much thought, just looking forward to getting into bed. The cricket pitch, which had joined the college perimeter fencing, was also lined by more of the same well-established trees. I walked down towards the rear gates and something caught my eye. At the edge of my peripheral vision, I sensed movement. I then spotted what looked like a tall grey figure that was moving very slowly parallel to the trees, a couple of hundred metres away. I stopped and stared into the gloom, and it was a typical cold, wet spring early morning, so there was a bit of mist hanging around the trees, and I was a little unnerved. I stopped and I watched, partially trying to see who or what this figure was, but also out of concern for my own safety, as every so often some of the local youths were known to take the opportunity to give a student a bashing. Had I continued down towards the gate, our paths would have crossed. However, they tended to wait further down towards the town and not venture onto the grounds, so I wasn't sure who or what this could be. I peered into the gloom and, and watched for another minute as the tall grey figure slightly hunched over. It appeared to be wearing a dark grey hooded cloak and drifted along the tree line at a steady pace. It never looked up and it appeared to be semi-solid, but had such a vague strangeness to its motion. As it got closer, I had the impression that the hood appeared to be fur-lined, but I was unable to make out any distinguishing features. Needless to say, I didn't move, and I watched as my mind raced, trying to comprehend what I was witnessing. I shivered and felt sweat prickle on the back of my neck in the cold damp air as it continued along the grounds, until it reached the end of the tree line. 
and then it just seemed to melt away. I was left standing there in the cold pre-dawn. I either legged it back to my mate's dorm, but had no direct access to his corridor, or I braved it and ran down the rest of the lane, through the gates and back to Anne and Roland's. I chose the latter. Although I didn't feel threatened by this apparition, the sheer weirdness of the experience was too much, and so I ran as fast as I could, nervously glancing both ways as I passed the last of the trees that stood next to the gates. It must have taken me a couple of minutes to reach my lodgings. I played a lot of rugby back then, so I was in good shape, but I'll never forget how desperate I felt to get there as I ran along empty streets. I reached the house and side door and quickly put my key in the lock. It turned, but the door didn't budge. Due to the lateness of the hour, Roland had assumed I was staying out and had dropped the bolt on the side door as he sometimes did. I had no choice but to knock the door and wake up my elderly landlords. After a short while, Roland opened the door and I was expecting a roasting as I'd clearly woken him up, but his reaction really unnerved me. He asked if I was alright. I mumbled a sort of apology and, and went to walk through the door and he put his hand on my arm and he asked me again, this time with genuine concern in his voice. Again, partially out of embarrassment for running off like a child and feeling guilty for waking them up in the early hours and generally being freaked out by what I had witnessed, I apologised and said that I'd tell him about it the next day. I quickly got to my room and spent the rest of the night trying to make sense of what I'd just witnessed. I was out early next morning, but later that day, I returned and went into the lounge to see Roland. I wanted to apologise again, and I guessed to just tell someone what I thought I'd seen. He was a jovial character, and despite being in advanced years, he had a good sense of humour. He broke the ice by poking fun at me and stated, to my shock, that when he'd opened the door, I'd stood there white as a sheet and looked as if I'd seen a ghost. By this time of the year, they'd begun to get to know me, and Roland had gone back to bed, genuinely concerned that something bad had happened at the end of my night. I had that same prickly feeling on the back of my neck, so I began to describe my journey down to the lane. I'd only begun to describe the grey figure by the bottom fields when Roland interrupted me. He patted me on my arm and he called Anne into the lounge. I'll never forget his face when, in his broad Worcester accent, he shouted to his wife, Anne, he's seen her. She came in, clapped her hands and sat down while I recounted my strange experience. They both nodded and said that growing up locally, they'd heard many tales of this grey cloaked figure that had been spotted wandering around the area. Anne went on to say that her mother had told her stories of a lady of the manor who was meant to still be looking for someone or something that she'd lost. This really unnerved me. I genuinely believed their reaction. Anne went off to make us a cup of tea, while Roland assured me that she had never done anyone any harm, so I shouldn't worry about it. Just to finish, a few days later, whilst walking through the campus, Anne's sister, who worked in the admin department, stopped me and excitedly asked me how I was after seeing her. She confirmed that her mother had witnessed this many years before, and not to worry, as she was too busy looking and meant no harm. I regularly used the same path throughout my time in Worcester, but never had a repeat sighting. I was quite glad, but it did give me a feeling of fear or concern. It was just so strange to have this experience almost entirely ratified by people whom I trusted sort of reassured me. So thanks very much, Nick. That's a good one to open. A nice grey lady story. Classic. I think grey ladies are actually really interesting. And I, I'd really like, I think, possibly to do an episode at some point on, you know, the folklore of grey ladies and where, where the hooded figure comes from. Because, you know, like it's such a almost sort of, I don't want to say cliche because that sounds like I'm being mean, but it's such a, a common sighting. Um, somehow it's clearly got embedded into folklore. Um, 
somewhere along the line. Uh, so I'd really love to do a story of that. And of course, I'd, I'd really love to see a, a grey lady myself someday. I would not sure I'd handle it as well as you did. Um, I'd probably just dissolved on the spot. But anyway, our next story comes from Eli. And Eli says, I have two pretty short stories that both happened directly to myself. First off, when I was young, perhaps not even a year old, one night, late 95, early 96, at my home in Hull, my father was working on the family computer and my mother, in a separate room, was finishing off the menial house tasks that come alongside family life when they heard me crying through the baby monitors. My father, being the closest, naturally got up to tend to me and as he was leaving the room, he heard a woman's voice up the stairs. It said, Don't worry, darling, I'll take this one. Unfazed and tired from looking after a recently born child, my father turned around to carry on with his work. He heard on the baby monitor the woman's voice calming me down and getting me back to sleep once again, thinking nothing of it. A little later that night, as my parents were unwinding, my father thanked my mother for tending to me when my mother gave him a concerned look. She said to him, Did you hear the voice on the monitor too? He replied with confirmation, wondering why she was concerned with his hearing of her through the monitor, as, you know, isn't that what the monitor does? My mother then told him, yeah, but that wasn't me. I was in the kitchen washing up. It was the first of a few instances that my parents encountered this grey lady who only ever seemed to appear to look after me and my sister when we were distressed. They said they felt a kind of caring energy off of her and were never concerned, but would occasionally hear her speak through the monitor. And every now and then, they would see her walk through the doorways into empty rooms. I find this story quite comforting, knowing that some entity was looking out for me and my family. Also, because of the fact that it's not often that ghost stories are of a friendly nature. The second story had a bit of a different vibe and it shook me up a bit. I was 15 years old and living in a small Devonshire town. My house on the top floor had a renovated attic as an extra room and me and my father are avid musicians, so it naturally became sort of a music room. One time, when I was home alone, I know, cliche, during the school holidays, I was taking up my usual routine of playing my electric guitar. I usually did it when I was alone so I could crank the amp up a bit more without repercussions, as any rebellious teen would. I remember that particular afternoon struggling to get in the groove and felt a little disassociated from my playing, but I persisted nonetheless. Suddenly, the sound from my amp cut out. Thinking, of course, that my cable or the amp had glitched out, I walked over to the amp and to do some fault finding. Everything seemed to be in place, and as I left it, except for the power switch on the back of the amp, which had turned off. Okay, that's weird, I thought to myself, as there wasn't anything else within the immediate vicinity that could have moved and knocked into it. But I tried not to think about it, and I turned it back and continued playing. Not two minutes in, the same occurrence, there was suddenly no noise. I sheepishly walked back over to confirm the issue, and as before, the power switch was in the off position. As anyone would, I was now beginning to think that this was way more of a coincidence. I put my guitar down and made for the door to leave. And just as I did so, right before my eyes, the door swung shut. Not a slam, but it wasn't the cliché slow creak you get in horror movies. I started to book it a bit faster, and as I was opening the door, I felt a bit of resistance on it. But of course now I wasn't taking any prisoners in trying to flee the scene. This is the bit that really got me though. As I was exiting the room, I was tripped. Akin to a little school when you would stick your foot out to trip your mates, except the doorway was clear. I sprinted down the two flights of stairs out the front door and I sat on the side of the road for two hours until my parents both came back from work. That was the only time that I was ever interrupted playing. 
I'm not sure whether whatever it was didn't like my mediocre attempt at playing, or perhaps it wasn't a fan of rock, but it did not want me to play that day. It was also the last time I played in the attic. Thanks very much, Eli, for your story. I say thanks. Uh, this is coming from someone who routinely sits down to play my guitar um, and freaks myself out because I put headphones on and play really loudly and then suddenly realise that, you know, living by myself, like, it just is it's weird to have, like, loud headphones in a, in a room by yourself and I end up always freaking myself out and having to take them off. So, I yeah, I, I wouldn't... I don't think I relish being in your position uh, and having actually anything actually genuinely spooky happen at the same time. So the next story comes from Ben, which of course is a quality name. Uh, and Ben says, My last year of high school, my family moved to Stafford, Virginia. It's a suburb of Washington, about 40 miles south of the city. George Washington grew up in Stafford and its long history and location between Washington and Richmond mean that it has more than its fair share of colonial and Civil War historical sites. One of these sites is in the Arquia Episcopal Church. It was built in the 1750s. It's a beautiful Georgian church on a hill heavily surrounded by trees. The church had survived two wars, fully intact, and still has a congregation today. Attached to the church is a cemetery with gravestones that date back to Virginia's early colonial history in the 17th century. The church itself is set off the main road, and the woods around it muffle the sound of traffic. It's a quiet, beautiful, and fascinating place. I hadn't lived in Stafford long before I heard the local legends about the church. The story was that as a result of the upheavals in Virginia during the American Revolution, the church was closed. At that time, the heavily trafficked present highway going by the church was a colonial dirt road called the King's Highway. A woman walking along the road was set upon by highwaymen. They killed her and placed her body in the belfry of the then abandoned church. After the war, the church was reopened and her body was discovered in the belfry. All that remained of the poor woman was a skeleton with long blonde hair. Ever since then, people have said that they can see this woman in the windows of the church's belfry. Multiple people have told me this story, and the details of the story were always remarkably similar. Despite my own research, I've never been able to verify if this event is actually historic or not, but I can tell you that it's a story that is told by locals with macabre pride and more than a little relish. Now... I've always been a rational, sceptical person who scoffs at the supernatural, and I was no different at 18. However, I've always loved a good ghost story, and this one was just too good to pass up. Besides, I was 18, and Stafford was a very dull place to live, so I asked two friends of mine if they'd like to go ghost hunting at the church. Also, being 18, fresh out of high school and bored, they quickly agreed. So, on a summer evening in July, we went to the church to see if we could find the woman in the belfry. It was dusk at the tail end of what photographers call the blue hour. We had chosen a weeknight to go up there to avoid any church events, and our car was the only one in the parking lot. We slowly walked from there into the cemetery and kept our eyes on the windows in the belfry. As we walked around the side of the church, one of my friends said, It feels kind of weird here, like something's actually going to happen. In spite of myself, I agreed with her. Summer nights in Virginia are usually hot and humid, and this one was no different, but as soon as we walked into the cemetery, it quickly felt cooler and the air felt more electric somehow. I didn't have much time to think about this, however, because my other friend suddenly said, What's that like? We turned our attention from the belfry and looked out a window that faced the sanctuary. There was a single candle burning on the wall. For a minute, I thought it was an electric red exit sign, but the light was definitely flickering. We got a little closer and saw that it was a lit candle giving off an orange glow. 
I was about to ask out loud why a candle would be kept unattended in a church with a wood interior, but I didn't have a chance, because the candle faded out. It didn't go out suddenly. It faded and then went black. That was all we needed to see. We bolted out of that cemetery screaming and jumped into the car. My friend driving panicked and nearly barreled out into a heavy traffic onto the highway whilst I was screaming that I would be goddamned if there was going to be three more ghosts in that church, so she better not kill us. We'd had a lot of fun telling people about our brush with the creepy, possible, revolutionary war-era ghost over the years. I've even been back to the church too. Just, you know, never at night. Thanks very much, Ben. And uh, thanks also very much for providing uh, pronunciation guidelines for some of those places. Uh, because, yeah, I, I definitely would have got the church name wrong. Uh, the next story comes from Jim. Jim says, I grew up on a quiet council estate in south-east London in the 70s and 80s. We lived in a modern terraced house built in the 60s, which, like many modern properties, had fairly insubstantial dividing walls, meaning that you could often hear quite a lot coming through from your neighbour's house. On one side, our neighbours were an elderly couple, Jack and Ivy, who had lived there long before us. Jack was partly deaf and spoke very loudly, meaning we could often hear most of what he was saying. In 1985, Jack died suddenly after a short illness, leaving Ivy alone. A few weeks after his death, her children took her away to live with them and she never came back. The house was empty for several months. Ivy's daughter gave us a door key in order to keep an eye on the place and pick up mail, etc. About a fortnight after Ivy had left, I was sitting in the lounge with my parents one evening and as it was nearly 10pm, we'd switched off the TV and were preparing to go to bed. From the lounge wall, neighbouring Jacqueline Ivy's house, we suddenly heard a noise I can only describe as like wallpaper being peeled slowly off the wall. We all looked at each other and my mum stood up and put her ear to the wall. Listen, she said sharply, and my dad and I followed suit. Coming from the other side of the wall was the undoubted sound of a small child weeping. We knew no one could be in the house officially, as we had the key, and so my dad assumed that maybe kids had broken in and something had gone wrong. He opened the back door into the garden, and because of the high hedge between the properties, he had to walk up a short flight of steps at the back and look over to the room from which the sound was coming. It was completely dark, the curtains were open, and there were no sign of light or movement. He came back in to report this, whilst Mum and I could still hear the weeping. My dad and I took the front door key and went round to the front garden. Again, the front of the house was in complete darkness. We walked up the path, but my dad seemed reluctant to open the door, as we were both, by now, quite unnerved, without expressing why. He looked in through the kitchen window, but there was only darkness. Finally, he unlocked the door, opened it slightly, and called. Hello? Neither of us felt brave enough to go in, even though we had no reason to fear a child. It just felt wrong somehow. A few seconds later, my mum came out to report that, moments ago, probably about the time we opened the door, the crying had suddenly stopped, as if, my mum said, someone lifted the arm off a record player. We needed no further encouragement to close the door and move briskly back indoors. The next morning, in full daylight, we all went into the house to investigate. There were no signs of forced entry and no evidence of anything amiss. The room from where the crying seemed to be coming from was undisturbed. We never heard it again and to this day I can't explain it or decide whether it was something supernatural or some very bizarre trick of sound, though there were no small children living in any nearby house. 
I should add that the family that moved in some months later never mentioned anything untoward or odd. My mum used to say it was Jack crying, having come back to find the house empty. Who knows? Yeah, that's creepy. Thanks very much for your story. <laughs> that's definitely one that... Um, the idea of... I, you put it so well with the record coming off and just cutting the sound. See, the idea of that freaks me out more than the crying itself. So our next story, we're moving straight on quickly, is uh, one from Michelle. Michelle says, Quite a few years ago, I was studying at a rural university here in Australia. I'd made a small group of good friends and we used to hang out together. There were five of us and this story concerns one fellow who I'll call Tom. Tom was a big bear of a man and he had rented a small farmhouse about a 20 minute drive out of town. The farmer who had owned the property had died and his adult son had inherited the place, keeping the land and renting the house out. It was a tiny two-bedroom faded cream weatherboard cottage and it had a small garden at the back. Tom's closest neighbour was well out of sight, which didn't bother him as he enjoyed the isolation and living alone, he didn't need or want anything bigger. All went well for the first few weeks and he settled in nicely. Anyway, after about a month of living in the cottage, Tom decided to do a deep clean, starting with the curtains. The place had been closed up after the old man's passing and it was a bit dusty so Tom decided to take down the curtains, wash them and then put them back up. It was with the kitchen curtains that this story begins. The kitchen had old cafe style curtains. I can't remember what they looked like but they were nothing very memorable. Well, Tom took them down, washed them and put them back up and then promptly stopped sleeping. It wasn't like he couldn't sleep but he went from being a sound sleeper to waking up two, three and even four times a night. He couldn't explain what woke him up. Certainly there were no ghostly apparitions, no cold breezes or ominous sounds. He just would wake up at some ungodly hour and have difficulty in getting back to sleep, only to have the whole process happen again a few hours later. Tom didn't say anything about his insomnia, but after a few days, we, his friends, noticed how tired he looked. Sitting around after class one day, someone asked what was the matter and he told us about his problem with sleep. We questioned Tom about his problem. Had he been drinking coffee before bed? Was he worried about something or was he just not well? The answer to all though was no. So we let the matter drop for a few days but it became obvious that Tom still wasn't sleeping so we returned to the problem. Eventually Kay, who was the sensible down-to-earth member of the group, asked Tom to detail exactly what he had done on the last day before the insomnia hit. Tom gave us a detailed but boring account of his day up until he got to the curtains when he said something like So I took down the curtains and the roses and then washed the curtains and put them back up. Kay jumped on the bit about the roses. What roses? Tom explained that someone had put a row of large red plastic roses along the top of the upper curtain and he had taken them down and put them in the cupboard before putting the curtains back up. Kay looked at me and then the others before blurting out I think it would probably be a good idea to put those roses back. And apologise, I added. Sincerely, Kay chipped in for good measure. Tom looked at us a bit strangely, but by then I think he would have done just about anything if he thought it would get him a full night's sleep. The next day, we waited for Tom to tell us how putting the roses back on top of the curtains had gone, and this is what he told us. Tom had gone home, washed the plastic roses, and put them back on top of the curtain, and, a bit embarrassed, apologised for removing them, and promised to leave them in place in the future. Simple, right? But just as he walked out of the kitchen, he swore he felt, just for a moment, Someone put a gentle hand on his shoulder. Of course, that night, Tom slept like a baby. There's not much left to tell. 
Tom had no future problems with sleep, but he was curious about the whole thing. So the next time he saw his landlord, he managed to work the kitchen roses into the conversation. The landlord smiled. His mother had put them up, he said, God rest our soul, and his dad had never taken them down as they reminded him of the woman he loved so much. So perhaps love lasts long beyond the grave into the next world. I don't know. But an acquaintance of Tom did tell him, much later, that at one time he had tried to visit, but he thought he'd got the address wrong, as when he went to pull into what he thought was Tom's driveway, he saw an old man pottering around in the tiny garden and realised it had been the wrong house, for everybody knew that Tom lived alone. Thanks very much, Michelle, for your story, and it's great to have a story from Australia as well, just a little bit of uh, diversification. The next story comes from Jude, and Jude says, I live in Devon and have a really good friend who lives in Scotland. We used to live and work together in the city of London in the early 90s, but she moved back to Glasgow with her boyfriend after becoming pregnant, and her parents had concerns about her working in that part of the city, as we'd been caught up in the Bishopsgate bomb, which had been planted by the IRA, and what was more attacks a very real possibility, they thought that she would be safer north of the border. Despite the distance between us, we stayed good friends and always made a point of visiting each other at least once a year, sometimes her coming down to London and sometimes me going up to Glasgow. One year, when it was my turn to go up to see her, we decided to leave my friend's small daughter with her partner and go to a retreat with her mum, who was a practising Buddhist, for a long weekend. It was a chance for me to get away from the madness of London and for her to have a break from the demanding toddler. My friend's mum often went to a Buddhist retreat near Loch Lomond, so we were invited to go there and it seemed like a great opportunity. The monks ran a scheme where guests could stay really cheaply in dorms, enjoy some quiet time, meditation lessons and healthy vegan food, all in return for undertaking a bit of light building maintenance, such as painting, cleaning or some gardening to help maintain the old building. Anyway... The three of us drove up there, and on arrival we joined several other guests along with the resident Buddhist monks who lived there both part and full time, for what promised to be a fantastic relaxing mini-break. It was the most beautiful location, a centuries-old converted farmhouse set in open fields by the dark, calm waters of the loch. The beautiful scenery was lush shades of purple heather and green grasses, and here and there the local shaggy-haired highland cattle gently poked their shiny noses over the fences for a scratch. It was a really peaceful and so quiet, no buildings for miles around, so we look forward to fresh air, peace and quiet, and dark, star-filled skies. What a location to wind down, catch up with a friend and recharge the batteries. On the first evening, the little community sat on the floor in a big circle of the main room at the farmhouse, and we took it in turns to introduce ourselves, playing a few ice-breaking games, so we could learn a little about each other, what brought us here, etc., including a game of trying to remember the monks' Buddhist names. Harder than it seems, but they had a good laugh at our clumsy but good-natured mispronunciation. It was autumn time, but still, for Scotland it was fairly warm, so we had some of the windows of the old building open. We were mid-ice breaking, when a little bat flew into the room from outside and gently circled the group, flying around our heads. Of course, most of us just went, oh, how sweet, or similar, and a couple of the group gently coaxed it out. If nothing else, it certainly hit home how remote from civilization and immersed in nature our little mini-community was situated. As there was no TV or other entertainment there, and there was certainly no electronic devices around in those days, we had a fairly early night, and my friend, her mum, myself, and another lady who we had not met before that day retired to our four-bed dorm. It was a fairly large room, with two bunk beds on opposite sides of the room, either sides of large sash windows, and a small side room which had been converted to an ensuite for us to share. 
We all prepared for bed while swapping a few pleasantries with the other lady to make friends and soon settled down into the comfortable bunks. I was on the bottom bunk on one side of the room with my mate above and against the opposite wall at the other side of the room was her mum on the bottom bunk with the other lady on the top. We lay quiet in the silent dusky gloom and I was just drifting off when I heard a loud, what can only be described as a rustling noise from the opposite corner of the room. It instantly woke me and I remember feeling not a little irritated that one of the other people in the room appeared to be very loudly searching through a bag for something. Although, despite straining my eyes to see in the dim light, I was unable to make out anyone sitting up in their beds, or for that matter, moving at all. I looked over to where the weird noise was coming from, squinting to see in the still fairly unfamiliar surroundings. As my eyes adjusted to the semi-darkness, I started to make out a large figure, as tall as an adult, standing in the opposite corner in the dark space behind the head of the opposite bunk beds. Only it wasn't like a person at all, inasmuch as it was a grey form with no features, no face, hair or clothes, not even arms or legs, just a vague head shape and a winding where the shoulders should be, and then the rest of the body tapering and blurring down to the ground. I stared intensely at the hazy, human-like shape, trying to make sense of it. Was it just a weird shadow in the room, and my mind was trying to rationalise it into something that wasn't there, to make me understand what I was seeing? The atmosphere in the room felt heavy and oppressive, and the gloom was grainy and thick. I just stared at it, trying to make sense of what I was seeing. The more I stared, the more I realised it was an actual person, or the blurry shape of one, slender and dark against the dim light, still leeching through the curtains. Then the shape moved. It moved fast. It glided toward me in the bottom bunk at great speed and complete silence, crossing the room to my bed in just over a second. And as it did, the part of its body where arms should be at its sides began to rise up as if it was making itself look bigger. I did the only rational thing I could, which was to throw myself under the covers and, and hope that my quilt would protect me from this thing that any second was going to be right next to my face. I waited, expecting I don't know what, but nothing happened. The room stayed quiet, and eventually, after probably what must have been about 20 minutes, but actually felt like hours, I dared to poke my head out from under my protective quilt and see what was going on. There was nothing there. The figure had gone. Everything in the room was as it had been, and no shape in the corner or anywhere else. I did think about waking my friend, but just put it down to having a half-dream whilst I was drifting off. I finally relaxed enough to fall asleep and slept undisturbed until morning. The next morning, after daylight had started to stream in, we were all rousing ourselves and greeting each other. I thought about mentioning my so-called dream to my friend and her mum, but thought better of it. I didn't want to sound like an idiot and the lady sharing with us was pretty much a stranger, so I thought I'd sound a bit foolish talking about something that may or may not have happened to me in the dark. A few minutes later, my friend confided to me. Something weird happened last night. Just after we'd settled, I thought I saw someone in the room, and they walked toward my bed, and when they were near, I felt something like hands or arms were pushing down on me. It was really weird. I couldn't move for ages. Now, bearing in mind that she had been in the bunk above mine, it followed that the shape that I had seen which raised its arms, or whatever they were as it crossed the room towards our bunks, they would have been at the height of the top bunk by the time the figure had reached us. My friend's mum then chimed in, saying that she had seen a dark shape passing across the floor after we'd started settling down, which made her jump, and she saw it stop over by our bunks, leaning over the top bunk, before melting into the darkness. 
Both my friend and her mum had believed that they'd been imagining things or dreaming. I related my tale to them, and we were just looking at each other in disbelief when the fourth occupant of the room, the lady that we didn't really know, overheard us and said, I had a horrible night too. There was a weird rustling noise near the head of my bed that woke me up, and I couldn't get back to sleep for ages. I thought I could see one of you walking around in the room, but I was too scared to say anything as it just looked really creepy. We all laughed weakly and hightailed it out of that room to go and get breakfast. Only once we were out of the room and in the bright light of the breakfast room did my friend and her mum let me into their secret. They'd known in advance that the old farmhouse was supposedly haunted by the ghost of a woman who had lost her baby and she wanders wretchedly around the house apparently looking for it. They told me that the monks who reside there often use some of the outbuildings and side rooms for mindful solitary retreats or quiet meditation and they frequently get awoken in the night by someone or something tapping them on the shoulder or pushing them in their sleep, only to find that when they turn to see, there's no one there. The monks had the opinion it was the ghost of a woman asking for help looking for her baby. They had just become used to the experience over time, and generally they ignored it or called out into the darkness, reassuring the unfortunate spirit that the baby was not in that particular room, but she would hopefully soon find it. My friend and her mum had not wanted to tell me in advance in case it put the suggestion of a haunted house into my head, so my experience with the figure proved to me that there was definitely something not altogether right about the old building. Needless to say, we collectively asked to move rooms after that and did not sleep in that dorm again. As far as I was able to gather, the spirit of the woman is not malevolent, just confused, but I would not want to relive that night again, no matter how much free food and accommodation the monks offer. My friend and I often laughed about our ghostly experience and recounted it to anyone who doubts the existence of ghosts. We know because not just one, but four of us all saw one, all from different angles and all at the same time. So thanks very much for your story, Jude. And that is what we're going to wrap up on for tonight. So thank you very much again for tuning in to this year's Christmas Campfire We will be back next year with another Christmas campfire, I'm sure. But between now and then, maybe we'll have a a spring campfire or some sort of summer campfire that, as I say, there's still a lot of stories to go. So I shall uh, sprinkle it in somewhere as a little bonus. Uh, Just, yeah, just when it feels appropriate. But until then, I just want to say a massive thank you to everyone who wrote in with their stories. This year, I say we had like seriously unprecedented amount of uh, submissions, which was just amazing. I love reading through every single last one of them. And uh, I say I will include the, the others that haven't been written, read out so far in another episode. So, yeah, thank you so much uh, for making the Christmas Campfire episodes what they are, because they're, they're, they're pretty much one of my favourite episodes of the year. Um, partly because I have to do less work, but partly because great to have these personal stories shared. And, you know, it's just it's just such a great community thing to do. So thank you so much for writing in. Thank you so much for listening. I do hope you've had a a wonderful Christmas and, you know, you're having a wonderful holiday. I guess I should say Happy New Year. I'll see you. I believe the 8th of January is the first episode back. And, uh, since it's finished already, I should say it's going to be a cracker. So yeah, I shall see you January the 8th. Until then, happy holidays, happy new year. Thanks for listening. Sleep tight.